We have been studying the Gospel of John and have reached the end of chapter 12. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, of course we'll have it on the screen as well, but we also have Bibles there in the Purack, and um, I invite you to, to take one of those as well. Um, the last time we were together, we read these words, John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light, talking about the transformation that happens when people receive Jesus, the light of the world. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and hid Himself from them. Jesus' final words here underscore the reality that failing to believe in Him for whatever reason is not a neutral position with no consequence. It has huge consequences, not just in the final judgment, but even now. When Jesus said these final words, He departed and hid Himself from them. He had been ministering to this crowd off and on for years now. Few, if any of them, that day realized that these words would be the last they would ever hear from the lips of Jesus in His public ministry. No one of us ever knows when today's opportunity is the last opportunity. We live in a culture actually very much like the culture in which Jesus was ministering, a culture that's familiar with the Word of God, that has literally for centuries had access to it. And yet today, if you think about the mission field, the countries for which we pray, the area we're most concerned about is called the 1040 window. You realize that that is where the gospel started. That is where the seven churches that John addresses in the book of Revelation, the early churches, where they were, now they're considered the, among the most unreached people group in the world. As the centuries have passed, their day of opportunity passed. When those churches were thriving, this was a wilderness where we live. And there's nothing that would say in the course of time that when their part of the world is thriving again, this will be a wilderness again. A wilderness not necessarily of merely trees and lack of buildings, but a wilderness where there is a hunger and thirst for the Word of God that is no longer available. Do not think it cannot happen here. This is the course of history. There is a season of opportunity, and then it's gone. These people had seen Jesus heal the blind and the lame. Many of them had actually seen Him raise Lazarus from the dead or new friends who had personally seen it. They had heard Jesus teach as no other man ever taught, yet many of them, if not most of them, chose not to trust Him for salvation, despite all the pointers that would indicate that He was the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. Some of them would eventually believe him in Him as Savior and Lord, but many would never do so. This was as close as they ever got. The path of unbelief is a perilous one. For one thing, you never know when it comes to an end. 
Whenever we encounter God's works and words, we are brought into a time of crisis, of decision, of, of judgment. Whenever the light shines, there's a moment of time where we can pass into the light from the darkness, and, and that crisis moment impacts us, and that impact starts immediately. There's a sense in which every time you hear the Word of God, you are never the same. You can choose to receive it or reject it, but you will never be the same again because you have heard the Word of God, which is the power of God and the truth of God, and what you do with it changes you. And so in our text this morning, in John 12, beginning in verse 37, we'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 50, uh, we see this played out for us very clearly. Follow with me as I read in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In verses 44 to 50, then John summarizes the public preaching of Jesus to these people. He's doing a throwback here, summarizing what Jesus has said publicly before. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore... I say as the Father has told me. As we look at this path of unbelief and we see how it works, we see first of all that, you know, sometimes people think that faith is a blind leap in the dark. Absolutely not. Faith is reliance, and faith has good reason to rely. First, eyes, unbelief in response to miracles from God. These are miracles that they themselves saw Unbelief in response to miracles from God produces blindness. In other words, when I refuse to receive what the miracles clearly communicate, then God removes my ability to see. Second, at the end of the chapter, we have him refer to what the ears take in. Unbelief in response to words from God produces judgment. The words themselves will be the case for the prosecution. 
And then in the middle of these two, between eyes and ears, we, we literally do have the heart of the matter, the motivation of the matter, desire for glory from man more than glory from God produces fear. In this case, fear to publicly acknowledge who Jesus actually is and what he came to do. So we're going to look at eyes, ears, and heart as we look at the perilous path of unbelief. Consider with me first the eyes. Unbelief in response to miracles from God produces blindness. We read in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still do not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Remember, healing is one part of of saving, the word to save, the verb to save could be a deliverance, a rescue, a healing. And in this case, of course, we're talking about spiritual healing. Signs that John refers to, and that's characteristically the way he talks about Jesus' miracles, are miracles that convey a divine message. They're not just something that's spectacular. They're something that actually tells you something about God. And in this case, tells you about God, tells you about Jesus. Jesus did many signs before these very eyewitnesses, yet many of them did not believe in him. They just went for the show. They were just, they were astonished. They were amazed, but they didn't get the point of what he was doing. This was no surprise to Jesus, nor did it thwart the plan of God. God had predicted through the prophet Isaiah some 700 years earlier that many would respond to God's revelation with unbelief. By the way, John is quoting from Isaiah 53. There are some that think that somebody different from Isaiah wrote a second part of, the second part of Isaiah, and yet here John says, no, Isaiah the prophet wrote this as well. Okay, so get rid of your Deutero-Isaiah or Tritero-Isaiah because that's just people making stuff up 2,000 years, well, actually almost 3,000 years removed, contrary to what the apostles believed. I'll go with the apostles rather than the current scholar. So, people would hear what God had given the prophets to reveal, and yet they would not believe. This happened in Isaiah's day. His arm of miraculous power would be clear for all to see, but they would not turn from their sin and trust in Him. These words began the famous Isaiah 53 passage that forecasts the suffering and death of Messiah for the sins of his people. And it's fitting that John would quote from this passage as he reports these last few days before Jesus is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, before he pours out his soul to death to bear the sin of many and to make intercession for transgressors. Because they maintained their unbelief in the face of the signs. These are, you know, a sign that you can't see isn't a sign. Okay, nobody puts a sign up in their property so that people can't see it. The point of a sign is so that you can see it. So these are signs that they saw Jesus perform, and yet they became unable to believe because they maintained their unbelief. As Isaiah prophesied, God blinded their eyes, God hardened their heart so that they could not see or understand or turn and be healed. 
The blindness and hardness was judgment from God on their unbelief. Their day of opportunity was gone. Leon Morris, in his commentary, says it this way, he does not mean that the blinding takes place without the will or against the will of these people. These men chose evil. It was their own deliberate choice, their own fault. Make no mistake about that. D.A. Carson chimes in, God's judicial hardening is not presented as a capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings, but as the holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. And I've watched this over the years. Eventually, you actually get what you want. If you want to resist God, part of His judgment is He gives you what you want. If you want to pursue sin, part of His judgment is that He gives you what you want and everything that comes with it. So be careful what you want. Be careful what you say no to and what you say yes to. Jesus takes up the connection of seeing and believing again in verses 44 and 45. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. That is God the Father. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Those who responded in faith to what they saw Jesus do were responding not just to Jesus, God the Son, They were responding to God the Father who sent Jesus, God the Son, into the world. God gave His unique Son. To refuse the Son was to refuse the God who sent Him. They are in perfect unity and harmony as members of the Trinity. That's why Jesus says, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Jesus expressed this truth many times during his ministry, in his public ministry. John 5, 19, this is a couple of years before um, the events most recently here that we've been studying. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. That's why he healed on the Sabbath day. He was doing the work of God. John 7, 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In John 8, 19, you know neither me nor my father, talking to those who are unbelievers. If you knew me, you would know my father also. In John 8, 42, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. In John 10, 37 to 38, if if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. In John 14, 9, in the upper room, he says to the disciples, he said to them, said to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You know, people sometimes retreat from atheism into agnosticism. You just can't know. Instead of saying there is no God, they say, well, you just can't know. Well, what are you doing with Jesus? 
I mean, he came to the planet. That's historical reality. That's a record. And he displayed who God is. What are you doing with Jesus? Because Jesus made perfectly clear, God has spoken to us by his son. He spoke by the prophets. He spoke by the apostles. He spoke by his son, Hebrews 1, so that it's abundantly clear who God is, what he's like, and what his truth is. And that's why Jesus says in verse 46, I have come into the world as light. You know, light doesn't make things what they are. Light reveals things as they are. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If you remain in darkness, you're living in a fantasy world. You're living in a world that's not acknowledging the realities that exist. Jesus brought light so that we can understand what's actually going on. Refusing the light keeps you in the dark, and the darkness is not neutral. It continues to exercise power over you. Think of all the things we associate with darkness. Not just the inability to see, but we, we associate darkness with ignorance, with death, with, with, with illness, with despair, with domination. These things exercise real power over people. But if you believe in Jesus, the light, his light frees you from the power of darkness. That's why John calls him the light of life. And he says, the light came into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. Most, if not all, the crowd that day believed that God existed, as many in our world do today. They believe in a God. But by rejecting Jesus, they were rejecting the God who actually is for a God of their own imagination. But what about those in other places and times, including our own, who don't believe in God at all? We can at least say this. If you don't believe in God, you don't believe what the prophets, the apostles, or Jesus Christ himself believed and bore testimony to. So be consistent with your worldview. You must hold them all to be at best mistaken and at worst liars. They testify that they heard God speak. They testify that they saw God do miraculous works. Many of them did miracles themselves by the power of God. They believed not on some philosophical basis, not on some preconceived idea, but on the basis of their own firsthand experience. Now, either someone played a huge trick on them all, Every time they thought they experienced a miracle, every time they thought they heard from God, or they're all bald-faced liars. Worse yet, since they declare that the eternal destiny of every human being on the planet hangs on receiving as true what they have testified to be true, they are worse than liars. They're frauds. They're nothing short of evil. So are you willing to hold that view of Moses, of David, of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, of Daniel, of Malachi, of John the Baptist, of Peter, or Paul, or Matthew, or John, 
or Jesus Christ himself? What gives you cause to hold them in such low esteem? And what about the millions of human beings who've been transformed by the gospel they proclaimed and bore testimony to? Are they all deluded too? I mean, how much in-your-face reality are you willing to deny in order to maintain your unbelief? Is this not the very kind of blindness and hardness that John is talking about here? If you harden your heart against revelation from God, He will harden your heart, just as He did with Pharaoh in the days of Moses and the Exodus. You are too small to fight God successfully. You never win. It is only by yielding to Him that you are saved. If you continue to resist, you lose. He is either your Savior or your judge. So believe while you can, before the day comes that you can't. So how does your view of miracles match what Jesus says about them in this passage? And if Jesus actually did know miracles, what would that say about Jesus and his apostles and the record of their testimony? You know, we, we often hold things that are, are inherently contradictory trying, trying to keep the peace. We, we try to ride the fence. There is no fence here. You have to decide between light and darkness. When have you or others you know sensed that God was at work but resisted yielding to him? You know, I think as we look back over our lifetime, I think probably all of us can remember times where God was working on our hearts, where God was opening our eyes, and for whatever reason, we resisted him. There was something we wanted more. There was something we were afraid to lose. We were afraid of what, might, what God might do if we yielded to him. We were afraid that he, was, he would send us someplace we didn't want to go or make us do something we didn't want to do. We didn't yet understand the kind and loving character of God and the wisdom of God and the fact that because we're made in the image of God, we could never fully be happy or fulfilled unless we follow what our creator has created us to be and to do. I think all of us have been there at one time or another. And if, if by the grace of God... At some point, you finally quit fighting God and you started clinging to God, then praise God. Just like Jacob of old, it changed who you are into an Israel, a prince with God. It, it, it made a huge change in your life. But, but do not think that you will always have that opportunity. People like to maintain control of their life. They like to be the captain of their fate. And they say, you know, when I'm old and decrepit and, uh, you know, I'm about to die, then I'll whisper a prayer for God to save you. No, you won't. There are very few people like that. In fact, we tell those stories because they're so rare. The fact is, by the time you're on your deathbed, you may not be able to put one word after another in terms of thinking through it. You, don't, you have no guarantee. You have no guarantee that you're ever going to get old you have no guarantee that you will live beyond today. What you do, you must do now. 
At the end of the chapter, Jesus moves from the works these people have seen to the words they have heard. He talks about ears. Unbelief in response to words from God produces judgment. How often Jesus would say, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Think about the heart of God. He's communicating to give human beings deserving of eternal death to give them eternal life. This is is the main message of the Bible. How can I have eternal life? Through Jesus Christ that God has sent. It's not that Jesus will never fulfill the role of judge when he says, I didn't come to judge. It's that in his first coming, Jesus came as Savior, not as judge. John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In his first coming, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. But Jesus has already taught us that at the end of the age, God the Father has committed all judgment to him. John 5, to 24, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. When Jesus is the judge, he can judge you as saved or lost. He can judge you as one who receives eternal life or one who receives eternal damnation. This is Jesus' role. Those who hear the words of Christ and keep them, that is, that treasure them and respond in faith to them, do not come into judgment. But those who refuse his words are judged by his words. Denying that God exists does not make him vanish. Refusing to believe the words of Christ does not make them untrue. They will come to pass whether you believe them or not. They are self-fulfilling. They are spirit. They are life. They will save you or they will condemn you. God will do exactly what Jesus has declared he will do. If you come into judgment because you never believed, you will have no one to blame for your condemnation, eternal condemnation, but yourself. So how many words of God? I got thinking about this. I you know, grew up in a home where the word of God was often talked about. I don't know how many, must be tens of thousands of sermons and Sunday school lessons and whatever I've heard over a lifetime. But how many words of God have you heard over your lifetime. Think about it, words of God. And the whole process of how God made these available in our own language, I mean, it's just a fascinating study. 
I mean, we, we have the best attested ancient documents in the world by far. There's nothing even close to them. And they've been translated into multiple languages all over the world, including our own, our own dialect, our own current English dialect. How many words of God have you heard over your lifetime? And how many times have you shut your heart and mind and will to them? Well, those very words will condemn you. They will ring in your ears for eternity. They'll be part of the torment. I mean, have you ever failed to do something you know you should have done and you regretted it? And, you know, you say, oh, I wish I had, I wish I had. This will be the biggest regret ever. Abraham says it this way to Dives, the rich man in hell, when he cried out for Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to testify to his brothers, Dives' brothers, so that they would not suffer the burning hell that he was suffering. And Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If this could be said of Moses and the prophets, how much more could they be said of Jesus and his words? We have no excuse. Jesus really showed the truth of Abraham's words in that passage because Jesus raised his own friend Lazarus from the dead and many still did not believe even though Lazarus is walking around plain as day. Jesus' worst enemies did not deny the miracles. They didn't deny that he did miracles. There's no denial whatsoever from his enemies that he did miracles. It was impossible to deny. They were, they were front and center. They just plotted to kill Lazarus too. Jesus himself would rise from the dead, but many persisted in their unbelief. They'd rather make up lies than admit the truth and act according to it. This is why Isaiah said centuries before in Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. I mean, think about it. He's infinite, you're finite. If you have any perception of him at all, it's because he's made himself known. Because if he wants to hide, you're never going to find him. You're never going to find him. Seek the Lord while he's near. Don't wait till he has passed you by. Don't wait till you can no longer see and no longer hear and no longer believe. So what words from Christ and from God have been shared with you over your lifetime and what would trusting and following what they teach look like? You know, this is really something why we need to be in the wordy state. The blessed man, the happy man, meditates on God's law day and night, and, and he prospers. He's, he grows. He thrives even in times of drought because he's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. So, so those rivers of water, as you root down into them, what are they teaching you in terms of how you should be living and how you should be thinking? And what words from Christ or God have you resisted or denied? I mean, is there anything in that category right now? And, I mean, think about it. If it's actually from God, I mean, you really want to go there. And then if Jesus really said what John records here, and they are really true, what do you think he will say to you in the final day of judgment? And, and thinking about that can be, a very encouraging thing 
or a very terrifying thing. Because if you believed, he says, you have eternal life. If you believe Jesus is telling you the truth, he will prove he's telling you the truth by giving you eternal life. If you don't believe, he'll still prove he's telling the truth by condemning you for shutting him out. And so we get to the heart of the matter. In verses 41 to 43, nestled right between these two parts, desire for glory for man more than glory from God produces fear. It's part of this picture. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, for fear of, but by fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. The Pharisees were the conservatives. The, the Pharisees were the separatists. The Pharisees believed, um, said they believed in the inerrancy of the Scriptures, in miracles, in, in angels. The Pharisees were the most like us of anyone at the time. And because of their seriousness in the things of God, they pretty much controlled what went on in the synagogue, which is the gathering together of God's people for worship. But they were putting people out who believed in Jesus. So these men, though they believed, didn't confess it openly because they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These verses fall between our accountability for the works of Jesus and our accountability for the words of Jesus. And they give us insight into what was going on in the hearts of at least some of those who saw and heard Jesus in that day. You know, often what appears to be the reaction of people is not where they actually are. I don't know how many times I thought somebody was angry with me as I looked out into the audience and, and actually they were thinking about something completely different. Or how many times I thought that they were really focused in and so intent and they were actually working out the grocery list for when they got done with church. Um, you can't always tell on the outside what's going on in the inside. Okay? And this was true of these men here. They, are, they were authorities. They were powerful men but they were part of a, a group that made it difficult to confess Jesus. The spirit of the times can be intimidating. And it takes courage to buck the powers that be, whether they follow tradition or trend. Usually the best way to find out what someone really thinks is over a cup of coffee or over a meal one-on-one. -on -one. Because when they're in a group, they're going to hedge their bets. They're, they're, they're going to keep their head down. What we learn here is that even among the authorities who had taken a public stance against Jesus, there were many who actually did believe in him. His works were undeniable. His words were convincing. But many of them were afraid to identify themselves as believers because it would cost them too much. They would be cast out of the synagogue. We learned that back in John 9 when he, when he healed the man born blind. They would be excommunicated, in other words. They would be ostracized, ridiculed, persecuted. Jesus warned that his followers would face this kind of hostility, even from their own family members. They, there would be those who would think they were serving God by killing followers of Jesus. There still are people like that today. But that's why Jesus declared that you have to love him even more than you love family. 
and even more than you love your own life or you're not worthy of him. Why does he say you're not worthy of him? Well, you don't understand the level of commitment Jesus deserves or the vast reward he gives. If you understand that, then anything else is worth sacrificing in order to have him. Many in this group of partial believers never publicly gave allegiance to Jesus. Some, however, eventually found the courage to do so. For instance, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who take care of Jesus' body for his burial. If the historical records are correct, they paid dearly for their loyalty to Jesus. But they are not sorry for it now. That's for sure. Jesus addresses this issue in Matthew 10. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. In other words, stop yielding to the public pressure. Do what's right. How can we find courage to identify with Jesus, even when it may cost us friends or family or even our very own lives? He talks about that in Matthew 10 as well. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you have more value than many sparrows. And then he sums up his discourse there. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I would encourage you to have a time this afternoon to look through that whole Matthew 10 passage. It's really powerful along this line. Well, Isaiah saw the glory of the coming Messiah when the prophet saw him in the temple in the year that King Uzziah died. It was the year Isaiah was called to ministry. The glory of Yahweh was overwhelming, and the the glory that Isaiah saw was the glory of the pre-incarnate Christ. It gave Isaiah courage to prophesy in the midst of a people who rejected his message. He valued the weightiness of God more than anything else. And if historical tradition is correct, Isaiah ended up paying with his life for his devotion. Manasseh executed him. Those who secretly believed in Jesus but would not publicly identify with them had a heart issue that John identifies in verse 43. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What they loved, what they valued, what they desired drove their actions and their inaction, and it is ever that way. What you desire most, your affection of heart, will determine the choices you make. This is at the heart not only of unbelief, but of weak belief, unwilling to be counted, unwilling to suffer, unwilling to fully commit whatever the cost. It is only partial trust, not saving faith, at least not yet. And thank God some of them eventually came to a point of trusting that much. Maybe that's where you are. You're tracking toward Jesus, but you've stopped short of fully relying on him because of what you fear it will cost you. You may be trying to keep control of your own life. Well, that's a foolish trade. You don't control it anyway. You may be trying to keep or win favor with those who reject God in the Bible, family or friends. Who's to say that your coming to Jesus won't be part of what God uses to draw them to? Or you may just hate the idea 
that the current age will think you're backward and foolish for following Jesus. Well, it won't be long before none of that will matter to you anymore. All that will matter is whether you have trusted Jesus as your Savior and followed him as your Lord. That will matter forever. And you'll be rejoicing forever that you belong to him. And you'll be clipping the coupons of it forever. You'll be basking in the treasures of it forever. In fact, you can't even conceive when we read about what's to come, it's so beyond the pale of what we've experienced so far that it's hard for us even to imagine how good it would be to live in a world where there is no sin and there is no death and there is no sorrow and there is no crying, there is no suffering, there is no sickness. We can hardly conceive of that. It seems like a dream. And yet that will be our existence. Nobody who's having that kind of existence wishes he were back here. Winning favor with the world that is passing away. Nobody in the heavenly city, nobody in the coming age of the new heavens and the new earth will be sorrow they followed Jesus not even one. Not even one. Proverbs 4 says that out of the heart are the issues of life. So where is your heart taking you? That river, where is it taking you? And what are ways you show that you value the glory that comes from God more than what comes from man? You know, what's your index of what's actually valuable? And what are ways you show you value man's glory more? You know, we read a passage like this and we think about these people that turned down Jesus and it, it makes our hearts grieve and well it should. In fact, we know that though Israel was, they were the most privileged people on the planet for centuries. They, they were cut off, they were broken off of this vine of life because of unbelief. But God then grafted in the Gentiles. Cut off for unbelief, grafted in through belief, through faith. He used, what he did is, he's done this throughout history. He gives truth and light to a nation. You have a chance to receive it or not. When you reject it, he moves on to a different nation and a different people. And as we read the story in in Romans 11, there's a day coming when he's going to get back to Israel as well. If we can be grafted in, they can be grafted in. It's all a matter of faith or not. So what power of the Lord have you seen? And you may have to think about that a little bit, but where you've seen God intervene, and, what, and, and, and if you haven't seen it personally, you, you have testimony to it. What are you going to do with the eyewitness testimony of all the miracles that Jesus did? What are you going to do with that? I mean, you can choose to ignore it, but that's called, that, that's deliberate ignorance. That's not intellectualism. That's not honest. And what about this library of words from God that we call the Bible written over a span of 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors from different continents, testifying to one way of salvation, Jesus the Messiah. What are you going to do with it? And where is your heart? What do you most desire? The glory and approval of God? Or are you settling for the fickle approval and fading glory that comes from human beings?
The path of unbelief is perilous. Believe today while you can. Tomorrow may be too late. In just a moment, we're going to bow our heads. But before I pray, during this time of silence, when we bow our heads, I really want you to think about where you are on this issue. You need to deal with God now and not put it off. Because now is the day of salvation. And many of you have already believed, and you can just like put your stakes down deeper. Some of you have been on the edge. Maybe you're halfway there like some in our passage. Some of you have resisted to this point, but, but you're being brought once again to a decision point. And you do need to do business with God now. We want to give you opportunity to do that, to confess privately to the Lord your trust in Jesus or to admit, no, I reject him. I'm turning it all away. I'd rather risk the judgment you talk about in this passage. But at least be honest with where you actually are. I want to give you time to pray now. Let's do that quietly. Oh, Father, we believe in you because of what your Son, Jesus Christ, has revealed you to be. We are counting your words and your works reliable ground to stake our lives and our eternity on. We trust Jesus to be the Savior of our eternal souls, to be the perfect sacrifice paying the debt of our sin. We trust Jesus to be the life giver who himself rose from the dead on our behalf. We trust Jesus who intercedes for his own at the right hand of God. We trust Jesus who is coming back to claim his own. Lord, we trust him not just for the future. We trust him for today. We declare our allegiance to him. We lean the weight of our trust on him. We're willing to sacrifice anything for him rather than to lose him. And God, we pray that the light that Jesus gives will shine out through us, that the life that Jesus gives will powerfully be displayed in our lives. We're imperfect, we stumble, but God, may people see Jesus' power in us. May it be convincing to them. We pray that it, you might use it to strip the blindness from their eyes, 
and to remove the hardness from their hearts that they might, be believe, they might believe that they might be healed. For it's in Christ's name we pray.